MacCast, Sunday, March 20th, 2022. This episode of the MacCast is brought to you by ZocDoc. More on them later in the show. Hey, Mac Geeks, it's time for your MacCast, the show for Mac Geeks by Mac Geeks. I'm Adam, and this is a show where we discuss all things Macintosh. How you doing? Welcome back to the MacCast. Glad to be back here with you for another episode of Mac News, hints, tips, tricks, and information. How are you doing? I uh, promised you last time that I had a little bit of news to get into, and uh, the big news here at uh, the MacCast is we have moved studios. That's why it's been a little while since we've had a conversation. I know Apple had a big event, so we have a lot to talk about, a lot we haven't gotten into yet, and I'm going to give you my thoughts and opinions on that. But yeah, I moved MacCast Studios out of California, which means I myself have moved out of California. I often don't share a lot of personal information here on the MacCast. We try to stick to just the Apple stuff. But yeah, this is a big event, big change in my life. And as a matter of fact, as I sit here, you may even hear it. I am not on my normal setup. I am on my portable rig waiting for my stuff to arrive. My my stuff will get here this week, um, but very excited to be in a new place to kind of start a new chapter of the MacCast. I'm actually going to have a dedicated studio again, so I get to move out of the closet, although right now I am sitting in a spare bedroom in a little tiny space with some blankets tacked up. Yeah, doing a little gorilla podcasting, feeling like I'm going back to my roots a little bit. But hey, um, happy to be here and glad to be back here with you on the MacCast. And like I said, we have a lot of things to get into. We're going to be getting into Apple's peak performance event, all the announcements from that. I'm going to give you my thoughts and opinions. I know many of you have been asking for me to share that with you, so we'll get into that in this episode. We'll also be looking at the debate among analysts on What exactly might be next for Apple? Yeah, there seems to be a lot of back and forth. So I think Apple threw a lot of people a curveball at this last event. And uh, there are a lot of rumors, as you know, floating around out there about what Apple might be doing next, what they might be bringing out later in the year. We're going to talk a little bit about iPad and convergence. Is that something that is happening? And we've got some Apple TV Plus news, uh, some information on subscribership for Apple TV Plus, which is looking pretty positive. And then we also have the iPhone 14 and some interesting things are happening there too. I'm not really sure what it's all about, but uh, we'll kind of dig into that and talk about it a little bit. And then in the back half, we have a little bit of feedback. We're going to get into maybe a hole in the Apple lineup now, now that we've got a new kind of shakeup of Apple products. We're going to talk about some of your questions surrounding the machine that was announced at the event, the Mac Studio. And I had a couple questions from the community there. And then I have a really cool tip on uh, photos and syncing with iCloud Photo Library. So that'll round out this episode of the MacCast. Should be a good one, but because we have so much to talk about with Apple's peak performance event, I thought we jump right in there and uh, discuss that. Let's kind of start with some of the initial announcements. I'm calling them mundane. Maybe that's not not totally fair, but, you know, the front half of the event, not a lot of huge, exciting announcements, some interesting things. 
starting with Major League Baseball, Thursday Night Baseball coming to Apple TV+. Plus. I think that's a lot of fun. I think it's great that Apple is getting into live sports. It's something they've been wanting to do for a while now. As you know, we've been talking about that quite a bit here on the MacCast. They've been looking at the NFL, M- MLB, NBA. They want to get into all of that. And it uh, looks like they were able to secure something with Major League Baseball. I don't know that it's going to be a huge game changer, bringing a ton of folks to Apple TV+, Plus, but maybe it'll make a dent. I guess we're going to have to wait and see exactly what happens. Things are good now because uh, initially, you know, we were in the lockout, I think, when Apple announced this, still in the lockout, and that has ended. So it looks like we might start to see games on Apple TV Plus as early as April. So that is coming right up. So if you are a sports fan, at least a Major League Baseball fan, you are going to be able to start streaming games on Apple TV Plus. And that's what they kicked off the event with. Then they had some announcements related to the current iPhone and iPhone 13 Pro, specifically new green colors. as a green for the iPhone 13 and what they're calling a Sierra green for the iPhone 13 Pro. Both colors look really nice in my opinion and uh, hopefully will produce some new sales for Apple. This is actually an interesting tactic that Apple's been using for the last couple years, and I would assume it's working because they continue the trend. So announce a new iPhone in the fall with a bunch of new colors, and then uh, come out later in the spring, as we move into the spring, with a brand new color. And I would imagine that kind of renews interest a little bit. Apple can run some new ads show off some new colors and people go in and I would assume are buying them. So uh, what do you think about that tactic? I'd be really curious to know. Uh, I think it definitely does kind of keep the buzz going and kind of extends that for the current generation iPhone, even though we're, you know, at this point kind of on the cusp for a lot of people of the next generation iPhone. And we'll talk a little bit about what might happen with the iPhone 14 here a little bit later in the show. Then we got the announcement pretty much that we were expecting, something we had been talking about, the update to the iPhone SE, and pretty much the rumors were spot on. It retained the same form factor, uh, I think the same colors, Midnight, Starlight, and Product Red, so that's the black, the white, and red. Um, They did add the A15 Bionic processor, so bringing it up to date to match the performance of the iPhone 13 and the iPhone 13 Pro. What's really nice about this, I think, is that it comes in at that great entry-level price, so you're getting kind of the full power of the iPhone in a less expensive package, though they did bump up the pricing a little bit from, I think, $399 to $429. So you're paying a little bit of a premium. The assumption is that's because of the other thing that they added, which was the 5G So this does add 5G support, which should make it uh, very uh, exciting for a lot of people who are looking to upgrade their older iPhones and want to get in on 5G at a great price. It uh, does not support the millimeter wave 5G, just the sub 6 gigahertz. I don't think that's going to be a huge factor for a lot of buyers of that device. The sub 6G is what's rolled out more widely. It is or it offers rather very, very good speeds. And I think it's going to serve most people who are looking to buy the new iPhone SE very, very well. 
A um, few other things, uh, because of the new processor, it will get better battery life. They did update the camera to the 12 megapixel camera with Deep Fusion. You're going to get the photographic style support, Smart HDR4, and it does have an IP67 water resistance rating. So overall, really pretty nice update to the SE, even though the form factor doesn't change anymore. It does remain the uh, only iPhone in the lineup to have Touch ID. So a lot of people still like Touch ID and you still have an option for that, which is also kind of nice. There was actually a survey that came out, I think right before the event from Cell Cell. Uh, They asked 2,500 iPhone users prior to the event if they were planning on upgrading and about 40% said that, yeah, they were looking to upgrade to the new iPhone SE when it was announced And it looked like almost 12% of the people were going to be upgrading from an iPhone 11. So a number of iPhone 11 owners looking to potentially upgrade to the new SE. Now, these surveys are a very interesting thing in our community because obviously it's easy to say, yeah, I am planning on upgrading to an iPhone or a new phone when it comes out. Whether or not people actually pull the trigger that can be a whole different story. So we're going to have to wait and see how the numbers come in. Generally, the iPhone SE, again, it's not the hugest seller uh, when compared to like the iPhone 13, iPhone 13 Pro, but it definitely has its place in the lineup, and I'm glad to see that it is sticking around. An IDC analyst also predicted that the new SE could account for up to 10% of iPhone sales. So again, it's not the majority of the sales out there, but it is a nice piece of the iPhone puzzle for Apple and it should do okay and I know again there's a lot of people that like that smaller form factor Uh, it is an option that is available and it's nice to see it getting a little bit of love in the community and being bumped up to uh, really the performance of all of the current models so it brings it right in line and makes a really really nice addition to the Apple lineup. Then another announcement that we expected Apple to make was an update to the iPad Air. Something that wasn't quite as expected is that they added an M1 processor. Just like on the iPad Pro, Apple has brought the M1 to the iPad Air. That means it's up to 60% faster with an 8-core CPU. Uh, It also means that the USB-C port can now be twice as fast. So you have 10 gigabits per second. They brought in the 12 megapixel ultra wide camera, adding in center stage support. So, center stage making it to another iPad. Uh, the size and form factor, though, remained the same at 10.9 inches with the liquid retina display. They did bring in a new blue color that looks pretty nice, in my opinion. And uh, that goes along with the existing space gray, starlight pink, and purple. And just like on the iPhone SE, they added 5G support to the iPad Air. And just like with the SE, it is the sub-6 only with no support for millimeter wave. Again, I don't think that's a huge deal. Bringing in the same storage options with 64 gigabytes or 256 gigabytes and still starting at the same entry-level price point or iPad Air price point, I guess I should say of $599. So really good deal uh, on the iPad Air, especially now that it has the same processor, the same M1 processor as the iPad Pro. So Apple um, looking to probably, I would assume, move at this point all of their iPads to M1 processors as we roll forward. So I'd expect to see that in 
future announcements. And so that was kind of what I was calling the mundane announcements. Again, not probably entirely fair. It just means these are the kind of revision announcements, right? The stuff that we were kind of expecting, little updates to some entry-level products or or, um, consumer-level products in the product line. And uh, really after this is when they got to the big announcements, what I'm calling the stars of the show. The M1 Ultra, the Mac Studio, aka, in my opinion, the Mac Mini Pro, and yes, a brand new Apple display at a more affordable price point, the Apple Studio display. So Apple bringing back the Studio display, I guess kind of, and we're going to dive into all of these things right now. So the M1 Ultra, surprise, it's two M1 Max chips fused together. Apple kind of made this big deal about this internet interconnect technology that nobody knew about or they kind of kept secret, but that wasn't entirely true because listeners of this show know we've been talking about the Jade 2C. This was something rumored by Mark Gurman. It was mentioned by John Syracuse from the Accidental Tech Podcast. It was mentioned by Quinn Nelson over at Snazzy Labs many times. And we talked about it on this show that Apple had this sort of processor roadmap where they were going to take the M1 Max, basically have a 2x version and a 4x, ultimately a 4x version known as the Jade 4C. That is still in the works. And Apple even hinted that they did something really unusual at the end of this keynote. They hinted that, hey, we still have one more processor coming. The assumption would be that's the one that's going to be in the updated Mac Pro. We'll talk a little bit later about when we think that might be coming, but that's going to be the Jade 4C. Basically, you can call it two M1 Ultras fused together or four M1 Maxes fused together, however you want to like round it out. Um, but it's basically going to be a you know 40-core CPU, which is incredible it's going to be just amazing although um it's possible at this point that the jade 4c could wind up being based on the rumored m2 chip that's coming at some point this is all going to depend on timing and again we're going to talk about this a little bit later but because the uh, m1 ultra is basically two m1 maxes fused together really what you can think of this as is, you know, everything times two when it comes to the M1 Max, which is really powerful and exciting. You've got 20 CPU cores with 16 of them being high performance. You've got 60 GPU cores, which is just insane. 32 neural engine cores, up to 128 gigabytes of unified memory with 800 gigabits per second memory bandwidth. I mean, this thing is a beast already. It's also huge, by the way, compared to some of the other processors that are out there on the market, just in terms of the physical die size, even though Apple is obviously using, you know, their five nanometer technology to put this thing together. Um, On the video side, it has two video decode engines, four video encode engines, and four ProRes encode decoder engines. So this is going to be a monster When it comes to video editing workflows, you're just going to be able to crunch through massive amounts of video 8K ProRes RAW stuff and just do probably everything that you want to do. It's incredibly powerful, also incredibly efficient for the amount of computational power. Apple touted the power and performance, and it absolutely is impressive. There is one thing to talk about, though, and that is the Apple Graphs. Apple 
throws out these graphs that they're basically trying to show off. And, and we all get it, right? They, they're trying to show off how incredibly power efficient these chips are versus other ones that are on the market where they're operating, you know, at lower power, but providing just as much performance. And one of those areas where they wanted to really show this off was in the GPU. And one of the best GPUs out on the market is the NVIDIA RTX 3090. And they had this graph where they were comparing the new M1 Ultra's GPU performance to the NVIDIA RTX 3090. And they basically showed, hey, we can get the same max performance of the 3090 or what looked like the same max performance of the 3090. Actually, on the graph, if you look at it, they called it relative performance, whatever that means, you know, Apple marketing terms, basically. And um, they showed, hey, we get the same performance at, you know, 200 watts less power, which is incredible. It really is. But their graph actually ended short because the RTX 3090, they showed it running at a maximum wattage of 320 watts. But that processor is incredibly power hungry, and it can actually go up to 400 watts. So if you allow it you know, if they would have allowed that graph to continue, not just show quote unquote relative performance, then it would show that the RTX 3090 can handily best the M1 Ultra. But that, I mean, that ultimately doesn't matter because the Ultra is so much more power efficient. It is, you know, a better design, but it's definitely misleading. Apple's chart was definitely misleading and they tend to do this. And I don't know why they think they're going to sneak this by the tech community they absolutely don't and it doesn't diminish from you know what they're saying really the RTX 3090 is for most people a gaming graphics card and the no one's ever going to do gaming on an M1 Ultra i guess is, is the point right that's the thing we need to point out this is for video workflows it's optimized for that it's optimized for the things that Macs do best and apple doesn't need to really make these bold comparisons or at least if they're going to do it um they should be a little bit more honest about it but we get it you know it's marketing apple wants to hype things up as much as possible the reality distortion field we all know about this thing this is part of our community it always happens but every time it's just it's just i won't say frustrating but it makes me chuckle to think that they think they're going to sneak this past the tech community and it never works out for them so you know, we're going to continue to get these vague graphs and, and vague marketing statements from Apple. It's just part of the process. We get it. Um, but it still just is a little bit interesting to me. I don't know what you think about that. You know, do you think it's kind of crazy? Should Apple tweak that stuff? Should they be a little bit more open and transparent? I don't know that it really matters. Um, and a good, it, again, it makes for a good fun event. And uh, we can we can decode the reality distortion field afterwards like we always do. So, of course, they've got this big, beefy, beastie processor, and they need something for it to go in. You know, what machine is it going to go into? And that is the new Mac Studio. It's Apple's new desktop. It is a beast. This chip goes into it, and it also has options that use the M1 Max. So if you don't want to pay for the premium in the M1 Ultra, you can also get an Apple or a Mac Studio, rather, in an M1 Max form factor, which is pretty nice. And so what is the Mac Studio? Basically, it's a two and a half height Mac Mini, almost the same, or I think the same dimensions as a Mac Mini, just, you know, taller, 
Interestingly, almost two-thirds of it, at least, you know, I'm kind of guesstimating on this, but it looks like about two-thirds, the top two-thirds, are actually dedicated to fans and cooling. And so I initially kind of thought, oh, wow, the uh, Ultra must be generating a lot more heat um, than, say, the M1 Max, which we know Apple can get into a notebook, which just has far less cooling. But it turns out another factor in the Mac Studio is that it doesn't have a big external power brick. They actually have the power supply in the unit. And power supplies can generate a lot of heat, especially when having to drive something like the M1 Ultra, which draws a lot more power than the M1 Max or double the power, basically, right? So uh, there's a number of factors why they need you know some extra cooling. It basically pulls air in from the bottom and then across the components and then vents it out the back of the unit, which is, you know, got a bunch of the Apple perforated holes, a la the Mac Pro, and uh, it blows the cooling air out there. So it should be uh, efficient and quiet. It's meant to go in a studio, sit on a desktop. A lot of the reviews have already commented on that it's incredibly, incredibly quiet, as you might imagine. Probably doesn't have to kick on the cooling all that often, you know, until you're in really high, high workflows. So um, definitely set up to be in a studio environment. And it has an incredible amount of I.O. You've got four Thunderbolt 4 ports, USB 4 ports, USB-C ports, basically all the same thing. 10 gigabit Ethernet built in. You've got that internal power supply. Interestingly, Apple didn't go with a MagSafe connector. And I'd like to see the MagSafe become the standard, uh, the same MagSafe that's on the uh, 24-inch iMac. It'd be great if that would become the standard for Apple. I know, you know, MagSafe on a desktop seems a little bit weird, but it's just a really nice connector. And I don't know why Apple's not using it across the board, but, you know, this has standard, you know, like plug-in, like three-prong power supply that plugs into it. You've got two USB-A ports, HDMI 2.0. And a lot of people have commented on this. Apple not updating to 2.1. It's a little bit odd, especially with the price point of their products. I don't know why Apple's not embracing 2.1, but they're not. And then you've got a Pro audio jack, the 3.5 millimeter jack. And by Pro, what that means is that it supports high impedance headphones. This is just like in the new MacBook Pros. So a lot of nice I.O. on the back. And then a lot of people have commented on this. The machine actually has I.O. on the front, something that people have been wanting for forever. And the I.O. ports on the front change depending on whether you go with the M1 Max model or the M1 Ultra. So with M1 Max, you get two USB, four USB-C ports on the front. If you go with M1 Ultra, because it has the extra capabilities, you get two Thunderbolt 4 USB 4 USB-C ports on the front. So um, that is really nice. And then it has an SD card slot on the front, which is, again, great, perfect for studio environments. They use SD card slots a lot, or SD cards, rather, for their uh, for their cameras and those sorts of things. So that just makes it really convenient having access to all of that I.O. on the front. So really cool and very interesting machine in the Mac Studio. A lot to be excited about here. Basically, it feels like that mini Mac Pro that we've been talking about 
for so long. A few other interesting things have come out since the uh, Ultra or the M1 Ultra and the Mac Studio was announced. Turns out the M1 Ultra Max version of the Mac Studio is a lot heavier than the M1 Max, about two pounds heavier. And a lot of people were wondering what's going on with that. Why? Why is that? And basically, Apple came out and said. It's because they actually use a different material for the cooling mechanisms. They use copper and a whole copper system in the M1 Ultra versus aluminum. So just the different weight of the metals at metals actually adds to the weight of the machine. And then a YouTuber, MaxTech, actually did a teardown of the new Mac Studio, yeah, it feels a little bit, hurts a little bit when they start tearing machines apart. But we want to get in there. We want to know what's inside these things, what makes them tick, how they're put together. And he actually discovered something very interesting. The SSDs in the new Mac Studio are not soldered in like on other Macs. There's actually connectors in there. They're slightly different than the ones that are in the Mac Pro. They have a little bit shorter clearance in terms of the available space, but it does show some potential that you may be able to upgrade the storage in the Mac Studio at some point if a company like OWC comes out with some storage upgrades. So you might not be locked into the storage just from Apple, and you can get this with up to 8 terabytes, and that is super expensive, as you might imagine, coming from Apple. So Potentially, you may be able to upgrade. It's not really easy to get into the studio. As a matter of fact, a lot of the early reviewers thought you might not even be able to really crack it open. Um, Turns out there are some screws under the rubber ring on the bottom of the machine, but even that ring is in with adhesive, so you kind of got to deal with that. And, uh, you know, putting everything back together and making it nice might be better left to the experts. But maybe Apple will have a storage upgrade program at some point. You could even take your machine to Apple and have additional storage added to your Mac Studio, which would be very nice. All of the other components, the unified memory, everything, you know, as you as you know with the M1 chips is built in to the system on a chip. So that's not going to be upgradable. Um, but maybe at least you'll be able to upgrade the storage on your Mac Studio. As far as pricing, the M1 Max version of the Mac Studio starts at around $2,000 US $19.99. And if you want to go with the M1 Ultra, that starting price is right around $4,000, $3,999. So definitely in that pro range in terms of pricing, especially when we want to go with the M1 Ultra. And of course, it is just a desktop machine. There is no display. So then we have our final announcement because you're going to need something to to actually be able to view your content on with your new Mac Studio, and that is the Apple Studio display. Now, basically, and I'm simplifying things a little bit here, the Apple Studio display is the LG 5K Ultra Fine display redefined as an Apple display. And that means Apple-designed aluminum enclosure they did add more brightness up to 600 nits i think that gets it into the hdr range um and it costs about 250 dollars us more than the current lg ultrafine display 
but that means it has a lot of the specs that have been around in a display that's been around for what six or eight years at this point so still a 60 hertz refresh rate still led backlighting single led backlighting no mini led um, none of some of the advanced technologies we are getting with uh, other displays at this point. So that may sound like a little bit of a disappointment, but actually it's, I don't think being 100% fair to Apple because Apple did add a number of nice features beyond just what was in the LG Ultrafine display for a not a lot of, uh, for not a lot more money. So they threw in a 120-degree, 12-megapixel, wide-angle, 1080p FaceTime camera that supports center stage. So we finally have center stage on a Mac. They threw in their studio-quality three-microphone array, which a lot of reviews have already pointed out sounds amazing. It's not going to replace a dedicated microphone for things like podcasting or streaming, but it can do really, really well in a pinch. It sounds really great. They threw in the six-speaker sound system, just like is in the um, 24-inch iMac. So you got great sound, great bass. It's Dolby Atmos certified. It can play spatial audio. It remains to be seen how good that's going to be with a set of speakers coming from a desktop machine or a, a desktop display. So, uh, But still, it's in there, and it's all driven by like the rumors had kind of indicated, a built-in A-series processor, specifically an A13 Bionic. Um, It means that the Mac now has a lady functionality built into it. And um, it turns out that it looks like the display is actually running a full version of iOS 15.4. I don't know if that means it also has built-in storage to, like, store and run the operating system or if that runs from the mac i didn't see a lot of detail on that so i'll be curious to kind of dig into that and see if we can't figure that out so a lot of really nice add-on features and just like the lg 5k ultrafine it does have three usb4 usb-c ports on it um, but they're running faster double the speed of the lg at 10 gigabits per second and then of course there's the thunderbolt 4 port which you would connect to to actually to drive the display because it is a Thunderbolt display. So really great looking display. Apple added a lot of additional features for that, you know, a roughly $250 additional price over the LG 5K. It's uh, one of the only 5K displays that's on the market. It's looking right now like the LG Ultrafine 5K is not available, but I read or heard that it should be coming back, that it's just simply out of stock. So you'll still have that option if you're looking for a 5K display, but it's definitely more expensive than some of the 4K displays that are out on the market. So you can get cheaper options. Of course, you can pair those with the Mac Studio, but if you want to stick with Apple logos and all your stuff, this is going to be the display to buy. And some of the early reviews have come out, and one thing that seems to be disappointing on the new display, and it's a little bit odd because you know it should have that great Apple uh, image processing in it, is the camera. A lot of folks pointed out that the camera is soft it is kind of grainy in low light and even in really good light it didn't look very good at all in a lot of the demos and and things that i saw so you can go to youtube you can kind of see a lot of the reviewers showing off the quality of the the camera and it's not great you know you would think with 1080p it should be a lot better definitely doesn't look like what you see 
on the version coming from an iPad. So that seemed odd. Luckily, Apple came back and said, yeah, there is definitely something wrong. Um, We are going to be addressing it in a future software update. We don't know when that update is going to happen. Uh, Feels like a huge miss to me. Like, I don't know why Apple would launch a display and, you know, tout this feature and then have this problem. They have a little bit of egg on their face on this one, I think. And it's definitely not a great way to launch your new display. Feels a little bit odd to me, but hopefully they'll correct it and it will look great. Uh, Hopefully it is a software thing and not something related to the hardware. So we'll have to wait to see if Apple can actually correct that. Another thing that I think is a little disappointing is that, well, it's a good and a bad thing. There are three different stand options you can get with it. So they have just a standard stand like the 24-inch iMac that's a tilt stand. There is a height adjusting stand option, and you can also get a VESA mount version. But what is disappointing is these things are not interchangeable. So you have to decide when you purchase the display what kind of stand you want. And if you want the height adjusting stand, it actually adds $400 to the price. So again, not cheap, not as expensive as what we saw, the $1,000 that we saw with the Studio Display XDR. But still, you would think Apple, with all of their engineering talent, could come up with some kind of universal connector for their stands so that you could interchange them, so that I could buy you know, a display today with the built-in tilt adjustment stand and then in a month or six months from now a year from now if i want to decide hey i want to vase amount my display i could just pop off the stand that i have and pop in a vase amount and, and pay for that you know i think a lot of people would pay for that why they don't have it interchangeable is beyond me i guess they make more money that way i, I don't know i don't want to levy that against apple a lot of people go to that route but you know, can we just have an interchangeable like connector? I think their engineering teams are smart enough to kind of figure that out. I don't know why that's not a thing. There also is a nano textured glass option for $300 more. So if you want to get that kind of matte texture, which a lot of studios like and are probably willing to pay for, that is an option. Although it has been noted that the anti-reflective technology that Apple is using on this display, pretty much in line with what you would see on a 24-inch iMac, is pretty darn good. A lot better than some of the other displays that are actually out on the market that are kind of super glossy and, and highly reflective and a lot of times not something you want in like a bright studio with a lot of studio lights. But you have some options there. Again, Having to pay $300 more, a little bit of a sting, but I don't think that's really too bad on that side of things. Um, Another really odd decision, it seems to only come with a one meter Thunderbolt cable, so just three feet. So if you want to have your Mac a little bit further away from your your display, you're going to need to invest in a third-party cable. There was some rumors or some information out there saying that apple will eventually throw in a three meter cable a six foot cable Um, but i assume at this point the idea was hey you're just going to have your studio display you're going to have your new mac studio and you're just going to have the mac studio right under the display so you don't really need a long cable i'm i'm thinking that's what apple is thinking and then something that again is really for the love of zeus why would apple do this 
the power cord, not removable. It's actually built into the display. So if your power cord goes bad, the whole display is is done. It has to go into Apple. It has to get serviced. It has to get replaced. Again, why not MagSafe on here? Why, why can't we have a, a common removable power cord technology for Apple? Every device seems to have something different, whether it's you know wired in like on a HomePod or this display or whether it's, you know, MagSafe in some case, or with the studio, just kind of the older style, you know, plug into the back of the device kind of power cord that is removable. But let's get to a standard Apple. And especially at the price point of a lot of these products, it seems like it should be doable. I mean, this display, more expensive than a 24-inch iMac at $1,600 US, $1,599 and the 24-inch iMac has MagSafe. So you would think that Apple could actually do the technology that they could build it in. I'm not really sure why they don't, but that's just my opinion. I I would love to know what you think of this. The other complaint that I I have about this monitor that doesn't seem to be showing up in in any of the reviews that I've seen, but I just think it's a little bit of an odd decision, is that this display doesn't offer a downstream Thunderbolt connection, meaning that you can't daisy chain two displays together. And I think this would be a common studio setup, a common Mac setup, right? I want to buy two studio displays and I want to be able to use one cable to connect them to my Mac. So connect from my Mac to one display and then from one display to another display, having the daisy chain ability of that. And, you know, there are really no monitors on the market that offer this. Well, there is one. There's a BenQ monitor, and it's a 4K monitor, and that's the one I'm looking into for my setup because it has that downstream port. I can connect one cable to my displays and have it drive two displays. And why Apple doesn't build this into their Premier Studio display is beyond me. So you're going to have to run two Thunderbolt cables to your Mac, you're going to have to plug in two cables to drive two displays or three for three displays. Really, really odd. I don't know why we can't have um, downstream Thunderbolt, but I'll research that a little bit more. Maybe there's a technical reason for it. It doesn't feel like there is, but uh, who knows? And of course, there are cheaper 4K options on the market, but if you want a native 5K display that's supported by the operating system that has Apple's build quality and uh, technology, this is the display. And there have been a lot of complaints saying, hey, this is expensive. But again, if you compare it to the other 5K display that's out on the market, which is the LG, which is about $1,300, you're looking at $300 more expensive, uh, $250 really uh, in that range. And with all the extra features that Apple has added in, you know, even just the aluminum enclosure, I think it's a pretty good value if you're comparing apples to apples. And you, you really, we really should be in... Uh, the fact that a lot of reviewers are dinging it as pricey. Hey, it's an Apple display. We knew it was going to be pricey all along. It is pricey when you consider the fact that you could get an iMac uh, for less money that has essentially the same display in it. So if you want to look at it that way, yeah, you can make that argument. But if you want to judge it as a display against other possible displays that are on the market, it's not too bad. It's on the higher end of things, but so are most Apple products few other things that came out of this event that are worth noting and talking about. Apple is no longer selling the 27-inch iMac. It was sort of quietly discontinued. 
So that seems to indicate that, you know, the Mac Studio plus the Studio Display is kind of the replacement if you want a 27-inch desktop Mac. Obviously, that means you're spending a lot more money. So that's a little bit disappointing. Uh, It's unclear at this point whether we will see a return of a 27-inch iMac or not. Apple also announced uh, new colors for the Magic Keyboard, Magic Trackpad, and Magic Mouse. You can now get them in silver and black options. You can buy those with your Mac Studio. You can also buy them separately. So if you want to get a silver and black version, those are available now. And then on the side, Apple is continuing to obviously sell the Mac Pro until that will be replaced. And they did add a new graphics option, the AMD Radeon Pro W6600X GPU as an option. So you can get that built with a new GPU option. Uh, But I have a feeling a lot of studios are going to be moving away from the Mac Pro and potentially into a Mac Studio. If not, uh, I would imagine they're going to be waiting for the M1 2X Ultra or the Jade 4C version of the Mac Pro, which Apple did tease and should be coming in the future. But overall, you know, really pretty good event. Like I said, some kind of benign announcements that we were really expecting, but I think the big curveball that Apple threw, and they really did keep this kind of secret right up until the last minute, was the uh, Mac Studio. And the Mac Studio is very, very exciting. And it'll be interesting to see now that it's hitting the market, what people are doing with it and what kind of benchmarks we're seeing. But overall, early benchmarks seem to show it's, it's performing exactly like Apple said it would. Uh, it is going to be great in studio environments. And I know a lot of people are very excited about it. So if you're getting a new Mac Studio or you have one, I'd love to hear from you. If you uh, have your initial thoughts and opinions, please send your audio comments and emails to maccast at gmail.com. And we'll talk about it here in the community. You know, that's what this show is all about is the buzz in the community. And I want to hear from you. So please uh, send those emails and audio comments. And uh, overall, uh, very excited about the Mac Studio. I don't know that I have one in my future. I don't necessarily need that. I can get by with a little bit less machine. Um, So, and I will probably, I don't know if I'll stick with notebooks, but maybe the next version of the Mac mini that, that might be the desktop for, for me. We'll have to wait and see, but you know, I, if, if it made sense, I would love to have a Mac studio. I think it's a great, great new product in Apple's lineup. So that was Apple's latest event, and already, almost immediately following it, we started hearing from analysts on what might be next. They are weighing in and agreeing to disagree, disagreeing on many, many things, Uh, specifically starting off with the new Apple Studio display. There are already rumors uh, coming from mainly Ross Young, display analyst Ross Young, saying that Apple will update the Apple Studio display with some of those more advanced features, have kind of, I guess, a pro version of maybe the Apple Studio display that's not Pro Display XDR, so maybe something in the middle, bringing in a variable 120 hertz refresh rate, mini LED backlighting, all the things that people were probably hoping were going to be in this version of the Studio display. Interestingly, Ross Young says, hey, that'll be out by June, by Worldwide Developer Conference. I find that highly doubtful. I don't think Apple's going to launch a new display Uh, right here in March, and then immediately followed up with an update in June. Just doesn't seem to jive with me. And Ming-Chi Kuo claims, hey, there's going to be no mini LED products from Apple for the rest of the year. He's citing high costs of mini LED. So Apple kind of done with the mini LED technology, at least for this year, according to Ming-Chi Kuo. Who knows who's right or wrong? Only time will tell. Apple can always surprise us. Apple can always shock us. 
they're working on all kinds of things all the time. And a lot of the speculation when we're, and we've talked about this, a lot of speculation is when we're talking about things coming from analysts and looking at the supply chain, it's hard to tell, you know, what is Apple R&D? What is Apple actually working on? What's actually going into production? They try to keep, you know, tabs on it. And sometimes they're right and sometimes they're wrong. But really, we have to wait till Apple actually makes official announcements before we really know what Apple is up to. I have a feeling too, you know, Apple's pretty clever about this stuff. I think I think there's even sort of leaks to kind of throw us off the trail that maybe even come from Apple themselves. So the you know, it's all a little bit a little bit spy games going on, I think, with Apple. And uh, we never really know. But it's fun it is kind of fun to speculate and it's very interesting to me when we see one particular analyst come out and say one thing and then another one say the completely opposite this sort of thing. And it just reminds you that, hey, we're all just like guessing at this stuff and maybe even there's some bias going in there that, hey, these are things that we would like to see, especially with this new studio display, right? It would be great if it had 120 hertz refresh rate. It'll be great if it has mini LED. And I'm sure those are coming at some point. Um, So even that rumor turns out to be true ultimately, but uh, it happening right away after Apple just announced this new version, I think that would only just serve to kind of impact sales negatively of a brand new product. So I just don't see Apple doing that. It also sounds like after the Mac Studio, we're likely not going to see any more Pro desktop models for the rest of the year, the Mac Pro or the return of the iMac Pro. Most analysts feeling like we're kind of done with that. Apple could be bringing out some new consumer level models, specifically the update to the M1 processor, the M2 processor, and when we'll see it and which models are going to carry the M2 is a little bit in flux. Ming-Chi Kuo says it won't be updated in the updated or fully redesigned MacBook Air that we've been hearing about. He's thinking MacBook Air update is going to happen sometime next year. He told 9to5Mac that Apple this year will stick with an M1 in the in the Air, though it could be a variant with a more powerful GPU interesting that apple would continue to do an update for the, the the air and stick with the existing processor you would think they would go with a new one we are expecting an update to the macbook air there have been rumors about new colors about a new square edge design to kind of match the design aesthetic of the macbook pros or the ipads mark german was also confirming that a redesigned macbook air is going to be delayed until later this year And he claims that updates for the 14 and 16-inch MacBook Pro models may not even arrive this year. They might not even come out until 2023. So that may all kind of play into when Apple releases the M2 processor. Um, What's interesting to me about the Ming-Chi Kuo statement about Apple sticking with an M1 but having a tweaked variant with a more powerful GPU is some of the latest rumors, specifically information coming from 9to5Mac, seem to indicate that the M2 might be just exactly that. Although 9to5Mac is predicting that the first Mac model will see the M2 in might likely be a updated Mac Mini. They claim Apple's M2, codenamed Staten, is going to be based on the A15 processor, and it will come with eight cores, four performance cores, four high-efficiency cores for the CPU, so matching the core count of the existing M1, but that it will have two additional 
GPU cores up to 10 cores from the eight that we have today. They also say that there could be a 12 core CPU variant or kind of a pro version of that M2. And so that does sound like a tweaked M1 basically, which is what I would expect from an M2. So who knows if lines are getting crossed or a little bit blurred here, but uh, belief is that Apple planned to do an M1 pro or M1 max Mac mini variant, but shifted gears a little bit and maybe that's why we got the apple studio and they are still looking to rev at some point the consumer-based mac mini with new m2s but it's really again not fully clear on when that might happen ming chi kuo though thinks that a new high-end mac mini actually won't arrive until 2023 along with maybe an updated along with the mac pro which we are expecting and he even says an updated imac pro so the return of the imac pro maybe that's the update to the 27 inch model desktop all in one and apple's just going to go with 24 inch for consumer and 27 inch imac pro for the imac i'm kind of feeling like that's not going to happen. I, I really think that the Mac Studio is Apple's replacement for the 27-inch iMac along with the studio display, but here's hoping, and we'll talk a little bit more later in the show because there is kind of that question of a missing kind of area in Apple's um, desktop lineup. And he claims that the updated version would retain the same design, the updated version of the Mac Mini. This kind of conflicts with earlier past predictions from John Prosser, who talked about a completely redesigned smaller Mac mini with a plexiglass-like top. I kind of felt like this sounded like Apple was returning to maybe the original design aesthetic of the Mac mini. And I do think the Mac mini is well overdue for a redesign. We talked about the whole size thing where Apple could, with the new processors, make the Mac mini quite a bit smaller. And why they wouldn't do that is beyond me. But again, Ming-Chi Kuo saying we're not going to get a redesign of the Mac mini and it's not coming until 2023, the next version. So you know, what is Apple going to bring out in terms of machines this year, of, in terms of new Macs after the Mac Studio? Sounding like, from a lot of analysts, maybe not a lot. We we might get some minor updates to the, the notebook lineup, but beyond that, maybe not much more. Bloomberg's Mark Gurman says Apple has M2 versions of the 13-inch MacBook Pro, 24-inch iMac, and Mac Mini in development, but doesn't really go in to say, hey, when are we actually going to see those. So should be a very interesting year. We're going to have to keep an eye on the rumor mill as we get closer to the fall when we would expect more Mac announcements. We were kind of maybe expecting some pro announcements in June, although I'm feeling less confident about, confident about those. I would expect that I was expecting that Apple would have the Mac Pro, but I think the Mac Studio is kind of that interim place for that and obviously it sounds like or i shouldn't say obviously but it feels like they want more time to work on the uh the mac pro version of their processor that jade 4c processor so that only means and i think that's a good thing that basically they're probably not ready for that and they want more time to tweak the design and really get that to be amazing before they announce it and i don't know with 2023 being the potential timeline i think that puts them out of the original timeline for getting everything on Apple Silicon, all their models of Mac on Apple Silicon. I'll have to go back and double check the dates, but I think if we push out until 2023, that misses the date because I think they were supposed to be done by 2022. 
And then finally, one other thing coming from analysts this week, not related to the Mac, but related to Apple Car, is it's looking like the Apple Car project may be a little bit in flux, at least according to Ming-Chi Kuo, who claimed in a tweet that the Apple Car project team has been quote-unquote dissolved for some time now, and that Apple would need to put together a major reorganization of the team in order to meet the rumored release date of or move into mass production of an Apple car of late 2025. A lot of folks believing that Apple is going to do an autonomous car that they are looking or had been looking to target a 2025 release timeline. But that timeline looks like it could even be in jeopardy if what Ming-Chi Kuo is saying is to be believed. I don't know what's going on with Apple Car. Uh, I, you know, I kind of feel like all along this has been a big, giant AI uh, processor, like R&D project for Apple. And I'm not even convinced that Apple internally knows what they're going to do with this project. It could be scrapped. It could be something that they don't move forward with. I don't know that Apple needs to get into the car business. Uh, I've mentioned many times that I feel like car as a service might be a very interesting business model, but I don't know if the world's ready for that. So who knows what's going on with Apple Car, but at this point, it sounds like not a lot's happening with it. It's not really moving forward very much, but again, this is all just speculation and, you know, (laughs) thought process, right? People are just kind of speculating on this sort of thing, but Ming-Chi Kuo tends to be a pretty reliable analyst, so I feel like if he's saying hey, the whole team is in flux. It's it's not really been moving. I would guess Apple had to shift resources onto a number of other projects. I'm sure COVID had some sort of impact on everything. And with people working remotely, I would imagine, you know, when you're working on a thing like an Apple car, you need to be in your labs and, and those sorts of things. So hopefully it'll kick back up. Um, but it sounds like maybe the timeline of having something by 2025 might be a little bit in jeopardy. Uh, I'd be curious to do to know too what you think about Apple Car. You know, is this really a thing that we need Apple to be focused on to be doing? I feel like we've gotten a lot of exciting things outside of that. Is that the next big thing? Is AR VR the next big thing? What what should the next big thing that Apple is doing? What what should they be focused on? What do you feel like makes the most sense. And I really don't know. I, you know, I, I'm not super excited about an Apple car. I'm excited about the technologies around it. I think Apple has a lot of the technologies to build that sort of thing, but, uh, AR VR feels more immediate to me. I just don't know what Apple's going to do in that space. Could be a lot of very interesting things. It just hasn't kicked off yet outside of gaming. And I don't see Apple going heavily into the gaming side of things. So we've talked about this a little bit. I think the AR, and Tim Cook has mentioned it several times, AR is very, very interesting, and a lot of people haven't done much in that space. And if Apple could bring something new to market that really has that consumer focus, I think that could be very, very interesting. I'm just, I can't even speculate on what that might be. I'll think on that a little bit, and maybe we can have that discussion in some future episodes of the MacCast. One thing I do want to talk about a little bit and kind of think on, though, is iPad computer convergence. You may have noticed that Apple in the past has run a few ads, and they've been running a few more ads recently that seem to imply that the iPad, for many people, is their next computer, basically their next desktop. 
And it seems like the coming years or in the coming years, we're going to get more and more blurring of the lines between an iPad and a consumer Mac desktop. Things are getting even more fuzzy. As a matter of fact, display analyst Ross Young thinks that based on rumors from the ELEC and LG that Apple is planning to update the 12.9 inch and 11.9 or 11 inch iPad Pros with OLED displays. Um, so moving in that direction. And then there's a rumor recently from Twitter that claims that Apple is working on an iPad OS feature called Mixer. And what this would be is it's designed to take full screen apps that are running on the iPad. So I've got my iPad, I've launched my app, typical iPad experience, right? I've got the full screen app running. And now I drop my Mac or my iPad rather on my magic keyboard. Uh, I connect a keyboard, I connect a trackpad. It would recognize that and then immediately take my full screen apps and shrink them into windowed versions more like I would have on my Mac desktop. And the rumor claims this feature would be exclusive to iPads with the M1 processor. So we know that Apple's moving iPads to the M1. So we're getting the same processor on a desktop Mac or a, a notebook Mac as we are in an iPad. And now we're talking about a more traditional windowing system when I've got a mouse and keyboard connected. Yeah, it's uh, it's moving more toward that sort of integration. And it's interesting to think about how Apple's going to do this integration. Is the idea that an iPad becomes more like a Mac or it just works more seamlessly with the Mac? It's something that would interestingly pair very nicely with universal control that we've been talking about. And I find it very, very interesting. What's a bit funny to me about this personally is that when I work on my laptop, I find that even though I'm using multiple apps and I have multiple apps open, I'm often working only in one window at a time. I'm not a split screen person or I don't, you know, use a lot of these apps that sort of lay out your multiple apps in little areas on your screen. And I think mainly that's because if I'm just working on my laptop display, it's not a lot of screen real estate. Even with a 16-inch MacBook Pro, I don't feel like I have a lot of space to have multiple windows side by side or laid out on my screen. Maybe that's just me. But funnily, funny enough, when I'm working on my 11-inch iPad, I will use the split screen feature quite a bit, especially when like taking notes and doing research for the show. I tend to use it more. So I tend to use more like a windowing system or a uh, multi-app layout on my iPad than I do on my Mac. Uh, with my Mac, if I have multiple screens, of course, then I've got all the screen real estate and I prefer working with you know multiple apps open and up on the screen, multiple windows and those sorts of things. But generally when I'm working on a smaller screen or a laptop, I'm not doing that. I am actually treating it more like an iPad, but maybe that's just me. I don't know if that's just me I'd be curious to know from you in the community, what are you doing? Are you, do you use on smaller screens? Are you using a windowed system where you're tiling your apps around and you're sort of multitasking? It's never really worked out for me. But again, I could be, I could be a little bit odd. So I'd be curious to know how you're doing things. And if you think this convergence of kind of making the iPad experience more like a desktop experience, does that make sense? And are we getting to this point of convergence where... At some point, the operating systems are going to converge. It does kind of feel that way, at least for iPad and Mac OS, right? Apple split off iPad OS from core iOS a few years back, and 
the two seem to be getting closer and closer, and I think we're seeing more and more signs of that. Some interesting news for Apple TV Plus. Just Watch is reporting that Apple TV's Plus's Apple TV Plus's, that's kind of hard to say, Apple TV Plus's share of the market uh, past the streaming market, that would be, past 5% back in October. That was right around the time when Apple was releasing some new shows like Foundation and Invasion. They were also launching new seasons of popular shows like The Morning Show. And so that may have helped kick off their numbers. They had been kind of trending downward before that. They were looking to drop below 5%. And then they're saying as of February this year, the numbers got even closer to 6% at about 5.6% to be exact. What's interesting about that and why we're talking about it is that that puts Apple close to HBO Max, which has about 7% market share. So a lot of folks, I think, in the early days kind of discounted Apple as a streaming player. Obviously, they're still a small player. Uh, They're larger than Peacock, just a little bit smaller than HBO Max, but In my mind, this says they're definitely competing and things are getting better and they're definitely getting a lot of buzz. You know, I am a fan of Apple TV Plus. I think the quality of all of the shows on the Apple TV Plus service is second to none. I have yet to really find a show that I thought was a bomb, that I thought Apple really didn't do a good job with. Now, some shows have been better than others, obviously, and a little bit more popular, connected a little bit more with, I think, uh, a larger audience. But overall, I, I cannot complain about the quality. If you're, the, the value is amazing. So if you're looking for a service that has a lot of great shows, a lot of great content where you can kind of pick anything and it's going to be good and get that for five bucks a month, which I think is an incredible value, um, I think that is really starting to click with consumers, and I think we're seeing it in numbers like this. So that, that's kind of my opinion on this. And to that end, you know, Apple did announce a couple new shows this week. They announced a new 10-episode Spanish-language med- medical drama series called Midnight Family. What's interesting about this is it's going to feature an entire an entirely Hispanic cast and crew. According to the press release, Midnight Family follows Marigaby. Tamayo, and I'm probably mutilating that name, uh, as an ambitious and gifted medical student by day who spends her nights saving lives throughout a sprawling, contrasted, and fascinating Mexico City aboard her family's privately owned ambulance. And I guess this was based on a um, another series or a show. Um, and the series will star Joaquin Cosillo, Renata Vaca, Diego Calva, and Academy Award nominee Yalitza Aparicio. So hopefully, again, I didn't mutilate all of those names. Um, but yeah, new show coming, uh, medical drama that is Spanish language. So that's very interesting. And then Apple is also getting, and I found this very fascinating, an 18-episode animated show called Puffins Impossible. But what's really interesting about this one is it's going to be simultaneously released on Amazon Prime Video and Apple. So this is the first show, I think, that Apple is sharing with another streaming service. Everything else has been exclusive to Apple TV+. Now, this series is a spinoff of an animated short series that I think was on Netflix called Puffins. And the main character is a little puffin, you know, basically a, a penguin. 
named Johnny Puff. I think it's fair to say that puffins are penguins or penguins are puffins. Hopefully I'm not getting that wrong. I should have done some uh, animal research. I, you know, I'm a tech guy, not, not a, uh, not a animal person, I guess. Um, but Johnny Puff is voiced by Johnny Depp and apparently it was popular. This new series is going to be actually a series of five minute shorts that follows the lives of puffins who have had their world disrupted when a meteor lands on them, giving them superpowers. So kind of a short form multi-episode series uh, coming again to both Apple TV Plus and Amazon Prime Video. So that's kind of the latest with Apple TV Plus news. And then the last thing I wanted to talk to you about in the news this week is what's happening with the iPhone 14s. Seems like the pro versions might be pro Yeah, I know. That's a word I'm making up. <laughs> More pro than uh, the other models, meaning that there's a really odd and maybe slightly disturbing rumor about this year's iPhones coming from analyst Ming-Chi Kuo. He says that this year's iPhone Pro models might be the only ones to get updated A-series chips, so A16 chips only coming to the Pro models. Kuo says that the standard iPhone 14 models will retain the A15 chip from this year's iPhone 13 model. So Apple would not update the chips in the entry-level iPhones. And that feels really, really odd. But 9to5Mac says that their sources are also confirming this chip split that's happening this year. Uh, that they, you know, they say basically there's going to be four models of iPhone again this year, an iPhone 14 with a 6.1-inch screen, and then an iPhone 14 Max with a seven or 6.7-inch screen. So you'd have a consumer uh, 6.1-inch and then a Max version. And then, again, the iPhone 14 Pro with a 6.1-inch screen and an iPhone 14 Pro Max with a 6.7-inch screen. No iPhone Mini. Looks like at, this might be the year that Apple discontinues the Mini, which is going to be, I think, a disappointment to small phone users out there everywhere. Now, all of the models will supposedly have six gigabytes of RAM, so you will get a bump up in the RAM even in the uh, in the lower end models, but the Pro versions will use the LPDDR5 version of RAM and the non-Pros LPDDR4X, supposedly. Now, these rumors seem to predict, like I said, the death of the mini option, and... Um, yeah, I find it very, very interesting that Apple wouldn't update the processors. We also have seen a few schematics surface this week, supposedly showing the kind of new camera design, the punch hole and pill design that we're expecting in the Pro models. So Apple ditching the notch on the Pro models and going with you know a hole in the top of the display to house the camera and the true depth camera system technology. Uh, interestingly, the new schematics do still show a camera bump on the back of the Pro model. We had heard some previous rumors that were claiming that the new the new iPhones this year would be just slightly thicker, allowing for maybe a little bit more battery and allowing Apple to ditch that camera bump. But it looks like the camera bump may still be in there. The schematics also still show oblong side buttons and the same speaker uh, whole design or same speaker grills. We had heard earlier rumors that Apple might go back to the round buttons and might be redesigning the grills, but that's looking like it might not be part of the spec. Again, 
assuming these schematics are correct and who really who really knows about that but then supposedly there were also schematics of the new iPhone iPhone 14 and iPhone 14 Max uh models and what's interesting about that is it essentially showed no design changes at all to the iPhone 14 model from the iPhone 13 versions. So still two cameras, still a camera bump, all the same size and form factor and design. And so that begs to question if the earlier rumor that the iPhone 14 models are going to have the same processor as the iPhone 13 and there's no redesign, that makes me wonder, isn't it just an iPhone 13 still? I mean, why do we even need a new name or model? Now, presumably, there's going to be other improvements like camera improvements, but that's not a lot. I mean, even for like when we used to have S years, that's not a lot of changes in the iPhone 14. And so for me, that's a little bit disappointing. These rumors make it sound like, wow, why would you even update from an iPhone 13 to a 14 if uh, if you're not getting anything other than maybe a few new camera improvements? So Apple's going to have to do something to kind of really sell this if these rumors turn out to be true, at least in my opinion. But, you know, what do you think about that? What do you think about Apple not updating the processor, keeping the same design, and maybe making just minor tweaks? Is Are we to the point of iPhone maturity where that makes sense to you or not let me know send me some feedback maccast at gmail.com but with that that is going to do it for the news for this week before we move on i do want to take a quick moment and thank our show sponsors starting with zocdoc you know finding and booking a doctor who's right for you doesn't need to be a terrible experience will they take your insurance understand your needs or be available when you see them With ZocDoc, the answer can be a refreshing, pain-free yes. It's that last scenario, I think, that gets me the most frustrated when I need a doctor. When I get sick, and that's really not too often, uh, it's when I need to see a doctor. And I want to see a doctor now. I don't want to wait weeks or maybe even months to be able to go in. But when I go online to my, my provider's site, I try to find a doctor, try to get an appointment. It is weeks out before I can see anybody. And to me... That's infuriating. And that's when I can turn to ZocDoc to find a doctor who will take my insurance and be available to see me tomorrow, not in days. And I love that about ZocDoc. ZocDoc is a free app that shows you doctors who are patient-reviewed, who take your insurance, and are available when you need them. You can read up on local doctors, get verified patient reviews, and see what other real humans had to say about their visit. So, When you walk into that doctor's office, you're all set up to see someone in your network who really gets you. Go to ZocDoc.com, choose a time slot and whether you want to see a doctor in person or do a video visit, and just like that, you're all booked. Find the doctor that is right for you and book an appointment that works for your schedule. Every month, millions of people use ZocDoc, and I'm one of them. It's my go-to whenever I need to find and book a doctor. In the chaotic world of healthcare, let ZocDoc be your trusted guide to find a quality doctor in a way that's surprisingly pain-free. Go to ZocDoc.com slash MacCast and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then start your search for a top-rated doctor today. Many available within 24 hours. That's ZocDoc.com slash MacCast. ZocDoc.com slash MacCast. And a big thank you to ZocDoc for their support of the show. 
I'd also like to thank my show sponsor, New Relic. You know, if you're a software engineer, you've been there. It's 9 p.m., you're finally unwinding from work, and then your phone buzzes with an alert. Something is broken, and your mind's already racing at that point at what could be wrong. Is it your cloud provider? Is it the server? Did you introduce a bug in your last deploy? Your whole team is now scrambling from tool to tool and messaging person after person trying to find and fix the issue. And with New Relic, that won't happen. Believe me, as a web developer, I've been there. I've also been lucky enough to have New Relic available on my projects, and it's an amazing time saver when you're trying to troubleshoot issues. New Relic combines 16 different monitoring products that you'd normally buy separately so engineering teams can see across their entire software stack all in one place. And more importantly, you can pinpoint issues down to the line of code so you know exactly why the problem happened and can act quickly to resolve it. That's why dev and ops teams at DoorDash, GitHub, Epic Games, and more than 14,000 other companies use New Relic to debug and improve their software. Whether you run a cloud native startup or a Fortune 500 company, it takes just five minutes to set up New Relic in your environment. So that next 9 p.m. call is just waiting to happen. Get New Relic before it does. You can get access to the whole New Relic platform and 100 gigabytes of data free forever, no credit card required. Just sign up at newrelic.com slash maccast. That's N-E-W-R-E-L-I-C dot com slash maccast. Newrelic.com slash maccast. And a big thank you to New Relic for their support of the show. And I'd also like to thank my show sponsor, Simply Safe. What do U.S. News, PC Magazine, and Popular Science have in common? They all ranked Simply Safe Home Security the best home security of 2021. And in fact, U.S. News just named Simply Safe the best home security of 2022 as well. And the fact that those publications named it the best is not too surprising to me as a Simply Safe owner and user because it continues to impress me as well. One of the latest things for me that makes Simply Safe the best is the fact that it's modular and self-installed. The self-install is really, really easy, but more importantly, as I mentioned, I moved and that means my new home can have the same protection as my old home because I took my system with me. Teardown was quick and easy, and I know setup at my new home is going to be easy as well. And I have a few more areas to cover, so the modularity of the system is going to allow me to add things like a new outdoor camera and a few new sensors to simply expand my system. Going to cover my whole house and protect everything around the clock, every door, every window, and every room. And best of all, it's backed by the best 24-7 professional monitoring in the business. They're ready to dispatch police, firefighters, or EMTs to your home. And with a comprehensive set of sensors and cameras, including the all-new wireless outdoor security camera, you always know what's going on inside and outside your home. Simply Safe is less than $1 a day, and you can set it up in around 30 minutes, and it's always simple to use. There's never a long-term contract. You can even try it for 60 days risk-free to see if you like it. If you don't, send it back free of charge. Simply Safe protects over a million homes in the United States alone. You can customize the perfect system for your home in just a few minutes at simplysafe.com/maccast. 
So go today and claim a free indoor security camera plus 20% off interactive monitoring. Go to simplysafe.com slash MacCast. That's simplysafe.com slash MacCast. And a big thank you to Simply Safe for their support of the show. As great as the new Mac Studio and Studio Display are, um, the fact that Apple discontinued the 27-inch iMac, possibly for good, in my opinion, makes it feel like there is kind of a hole in the Apple desktop lineup, especially if you want all of your desktop components to have an Apple logo. The 2020 Retina 5K 27-inch iMac started at about $1,800 US, and you could easily get one decked out for, I don't know, $2,300 to $2,500, somewhere in that range. And if you look at what I would consider to be the closest replacement, that's probably an M1 Mac Mini. And remember, we're the goal here is to get something that's all Apple components. So you could look at an M1 Mac Mini, and even the lowest configuration of that, combined with the new studio display, which is already $1,600 US, gets you at about $2,492 for a system, well above the $1,800 price of a 5K 27-inch iMac. And remember, we're talking about basically the same 5K display, between these two models. So that kind of, in my mind, leaves a hole in the in the lineup if you want that kind of setup. And I'm trying to decipher for myself or decide, and, and maybe you can help me in the community, decide if that is actually a problem for Apple or not. I mean, does the 24-inch M1 iMac feel like a good, good enough compromise? I mean, they did bump the display up from 21 and a half inches to 24 inches. So it's kind of right in that middle range, but it's still not a 27 inch display. Uh, you, you know, lose a couple and you also lose a couple of, so you, not only do you lose a couple inches, I guess this is what I want to say. Not only do you lose a couple of inches, but you also lose half a K of resolution because the 24 inch iMac is a 4.5 K display. Um, and I feel like the 27-inch iMac was really that perfect kind of machine for what I would call consumer power users. Somebody who wanted a little more machine than the base model, say M1 Mac Mini would offer or the 24-inch uh, iMac would offer. And a little more screen real estate, just a little more power at a little extra cost, not a lot of extra cost. So... You know, if you're starting to configure out a higher-end Mac Mini, at what point do you jump to maybe the base model M1 Max Mac Studio with a lower-priced display, like a $300 to $500 4K monitor? So now you're not getting all Apple components, but you could get a Mac Studio close to, since it's starting at $1,900, you know, close to that $2,500 price point where you might have configured a 27-inch iMac to see how things get kind of a little bit muddy in terms of like, how do you build that perfect kind of consumer power level 
desktop system. Is it a Mac Mini? Is it a lower end Mac Studio at this point? Because you don't have that 27 inch iMac option. So the question then becomes, you know, is this something that Apple needs to bring back into the lineup? Uh, I don't think the rumors that we we may get a 27-inch iMac Pro will solve this problem because that's maybe not coming until 2023. And even if it does, the price point on that is much higher, right? It's more in, it's going to be more in the range of the Mac Studio with the M1 Ultra. And I would expect it to have more of the Pro Pro Max processors rather than the consumer level processors. So it's really, really interesting to think about. Is this the right mix? Does Apple have the full product lineup with the removal of the 27-inch iMac, or do we still need kind of something to fill that space? I'm I'm trying to wrap my head around that. And again, I really feel like it probably is a, a Mac mini combined with a studio display, but it still feels like you're paying a lot more and maybe not getting the same amount. But I'd love to I'd love to hear your opinions on this. You know, now that we have this new mix of uh, Apple desktops, does it feel like Apple has the right mix? Send me some comments, send me some opinions, maccast at gmail.com. With Apple's new announcement of the Mac Studio and Studio Display, I think it's very natural that I started to get some questions from those of you in the Mac community. And I wanted to cover a couple of those in this episode. John wrote in to ask me, hey, can I combine my 55-inch 4K OLED LG TV with a Mac Studio and use that as a monitor? Are there any pros or cons in doing this? And the technical answer is yes. The Mac Studio has an HDMI 2.0 port. You could definitely use that to connect your five, your 55-inch 4K OLED LG TV. Uh, you can definitely use that. Uh, practically, do you want to do that? That might be a little bit of a toss-up. For one, televisions tend to have lower refresh rates, so things like dragging or scrolling might not be as smooth as with a dedicated computer monitor. They're also limited in terms of the resolution, 1080p, or I guess you have 4K, so you're going to be limited to those 4K resolutions. That may or may not be such an issue. Uh, Color accuracy may or may not be very good. You don't have a lot of adjustments or tweaking there. Another potential big issue is just ergonomics, right? Most televisions have a static stand, so you're not going to get any tilt or height adjustment, you're probably going to have to sit pretty close to be able to read things like text. And with a 55-inch display, that's pretty massive. If you're sitting close, neck strain might become a bit of an issue. You're going to be kind of moving your head back and forth quite a bit to see everything on the display. So again, while it's technically possible, it may not be the best solution. You might have to play around with it a little bit. Um, You know, again, I think it this kind of comes back to what we were just talking about in terms of like filling the gap in terms of price. You know, you, you invest the money in a Mac studio and then you still have to get a monitor for it, but you've spent so much money on your Mac studio that you don't have a lot of extra cash for a monitor. So you're thinking, Hey, what do I have around my house? Oh, I got these 
this TV, I could just connect that and use that as a monitor, maybe save a little bit of money. Might not be the most ideal solution. Another way to go is there are some affordable $300 to $500 4K displays out there on the market. That might be something that you actually want to look into. Doesn't add too much cost. I know it's not as cheap as just reusing a TV that you have lying around, but I would say, hey, give it a shot. See if it works for you. If not, you can always go out and buy a new monitor. So great question, and thanks for sending that along, because I think that's something probably a lot of people wonder about. I know I've wondered about just reusing TVs. I've tried it a little bit, and it's not been my favorite experience, but, you know, your mileage may vary. Now, Jimmy actually ordered a new studio display and had a question, so congratulations, first of all, Jimmy, on getting that new display. I'm a little bit jealous, but he says... Since the display has an A13 chip inside, why is there no Face ID feature? Maybe that feature will come in later in a later software update. And this is also a great question because, again, it seems like it should be a no-brainer for Apple to finally add Face ID support to a Mac with their own monitor, right? They're controlling the technology. I'm not really sure why they didn't bring Face ID to the Mac with the studio display, but I can definitely speak to technically why the studio display and all current Macs with FaceTime cameras don't support Face ID. And that's because Face ID cameras are not just cameras. It's not just the camera that enables Face ID technology. Face ID requires the entire True Depth camera system, which is way more than just a camera. It's actually an array of sensors, including an infrared camera, a flood illuminator, proximity sensors, ambient light sensors, front camera, IR dot projector, like you need a lot of sensors in there. And the studio displays and, and, uh, you know, MacBooks and MacBook Pros, they just have a camera in there. So since the studio display only has a camera, they actually wouldn't be able to even enable Face ID with a software update because it just frankly doesn't have the sensors in there. But that still does beg to question or beg the question, why didn't they put a true depth camera system into the studio display? Now, historically, when we've talked about the notebooks, it's always been believed that the limit was actually the displays themselves. They're just frankly too thin to fit all of those sensors into the laptop lid. So Apple would either have to make laptop lids a lot larger, put in a bump, like there aren't a lot of good solutions to jam all those sensors into a uh, a laptop but for a desktop like an iMac or this new studio display the question becomes why isn't apple putting face id in there and maybe it's because they want to maintain a similar experience across all of their macs and using touch id is good enough all of your macs for desktop and notebooks presumably have a keyboard attached so Unlike an iPhone or an iPad, you can just have Touch ID on the keyboard, and that works great. It's reliable. You also have the ability to unlock your Mac with uh, an Apple Watch if you have that. So maybe Apple feels like those options are good enough in terms of biometrics and unlocking. Maybe there's also a fear of accidental unlocks when you're just walking by your machine. Uh, I don't really know. You know, it's a little bit puzzling. But I think it's a really great question and something a lot of people have been asking and probably something only an Apple engineer could answer for us. And I'm going to guess that they are not talking. But I appreciate all the questions uh, and follow-ups for Mac Studio and Mac Studio displays. I'm sure many of you also have questions or thoughts or ideas. 
If you want to share those and send those along, I'd appreciate it. Matcast at gmail.com. And then finally today, I have a really great tip for you. I think we've all seen this, at least those of us who use iCloud Photo Library, and that is how long it takes to actually sync originals down to your Mac. You know, you launch photos on your Mac, you have it set up to download originals versus optimized storage, and you're stuck waiting for that little number to update down at the bottom of the screen. Like, when are all my photos going to come in? And Keith actually has a very unique situation kind of related to this and came up with a cool trick that he shared with us on how to get the originals to download to his Mac faster. So first, let me describe kind of what he's going through. He has an interesting setup. He has a bunch of family members. They all use iCloud, iCloud Photo Library. And so as we've talked about on the MacCast, I think a really good recommendation is making sure that you have at least one Mac that all of the photos from iCloud Photo Library actually download to and back up. And because Keith has multiple family members, what he's done on a single Mac in his house is he set up an account for each person on that. Each account has its own photo library. Each photo library is set up to download that person's iCloud photo library and save it to a larger external drive because that Mac only has 256 gigabytes of storage. So that can back up to those externals and those externals can then be backed up to other areas. And that way you have all of your photos backed up locally, even the stuff that you maybe take on your iPhone or iPad and that gets uploaded to your iCloud photo library. So that's a great way to go. It's a great way to set things up. And the only problem that comes with that is sometimes the length of time between running those updates when you know a family member might log into that local Mac and actually sync up their photos or when the photos are syncing in the background depending on how many photos have been taken, the amount of time that has gone by, that could be hundreds, if not thousands of photos, it can be hundreds of gigabytes of data. And that update can take a pretty long time to sync. And seemingly, with photos, there's no way to force that sync. It kind of happens in the background. Apple has its own kind of algorithm for when and how that happens. It can be interrupted by other work that's going on on the machine, other network operations. Apps can take precedence over that, and so you really don't have a lot of control. But Keith found a really cool post over on Mac Rumors from a user who goes by Bertan, and he found a way to make things sync when you want. And it might not be something very obvious or that you would think about. I certainly didn't think about this, but when it was mentioned, it made total sense, and it it is a really cool trick. And so the trick is to select the photos in the photo library that you want to force to sync and then right-click or control-click on that grouping of photos and choose Play Slideshow. What happens when you do a slideshow in the Photos app is it needs to download those photos to be able to display them locally. So that will force the photos in that slideshow to be downloaded and then played. And I'm assuming they're going to stream in one at a time. And so it's kind of happening in the background as you start to play that slideshow. And Keith says this seriously has sped up those downloads. He can actually get all those photos downloaded in a matter of minutes versus waiting hours or days for it to happen automatically. And as another trick, if you want to pull in photos in batches, he mentions, hey, you can create an album for those photos locally, because the thumbnails come down pretty quickly, you can create an album and then just 
create a slideshow from that album and it will download all the photos in that album. I think this is an absolute brilliant hack and a great workaround and it's really, really cool. So Keith, thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, great tip. If you have other tips or tricks or things you want to share with the community, please send those in at gmail.com or even better yet, record a quick little audio tip for us and we'll share that on future episodes of the MacCast. But with that, that is going to do it for the show for this week. As always, bandwidth for the MacCast is provided by Cashfly. You can find them at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. And all advertising on the MacCast is handled by Backbeat Media. They are at BackbeatMedia.com. As always, I love hearing from you. If you have a comment, a question, something you'd like to hear covered on a future episode of the MacCast, you can send your emails and audio comments to MacCast at gmail.com. You're also welcome to call in on the listener hotline. That phone number is 281-622-4269, 281-MAC-IM-9. And if you need show notes, links to anything that I talked about on this or any other episode of the MacCast, you can find those on the website. That's at maccast.com. And finally, if you want to find me on social media, you can follow me on Twitter, twitter.com slash maccast. You can check out the MacCast Facebook page over at facebook.com slash the maccast or find me on Instagram just MacCast on Instagram. But that will do it for now. Until next time, I will talk to you all again real soon. Yeah.